everybody. Welcome to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and this is episode 252 for December 27th, 2021. I hope you are all having a happy holiday break in whatever form or fashion that you celebrate. And today we've got kind of a special holiday episode, and a lot of podcasts do this for exactly the same reason I'm doing this, is that I am busy, hopefully, with my family having a great break as well. So, uh, I actually recorded this over a week ago, so if there's been some amazingly huge, phenomenal privacy or security story or whatever that has happened in the meantime, I am currently blissfully unaware of such. And so what I'm going to do with this episode, though, is I went back and combed through all the podcasts for the last year and tried to pick out some representative and interesting samples from those podcasts, almost all of which came from the interview shows, because honestly, those are my favorite and pulled out some kind of segments of of those interviews that I thought were interesting. Now, if you've been a podcast subscriber for that entire year, obviously at some point or other, you have probably heard all of these snippets before. But I will be adding a little bit of commentary between each of these snippets, so that at least will be new. Now, if you're new or somewhat new to the podcast, this will give you a nice little overview uh, of the kind of interviews I've had and the people I've had on the show and some nice teasers that might cause you to go back and listen to some of these episodes uh, that you may have missed. All right, so my first clip here is from February 8th, when I talked to Troy Hunt. And Troy Hunt is the owner and operator of the website HaveIBeenPwned.com, which is a website where you can register your email address. Actually, you could just search for your email address to see if your email address has shown up in the dark web as part of data dumps from hacked servers, from data breaches. And because so many companies now want your cell phone number, and that is your ID and not your email address now, uh, you can also, in some of these cases, search on your cell phone number. And it's a wonderful site he's been doing for many, many years, uh, basically altruistically. Uh, he does have some partnerships with many other companies now who tap into his database to help people find these things when they happen. But basically, that's what this guy does. And uh, it's made him actually quite famous. He's He's done quite a few speaking gigs. He's got his own podcast and and a big presence on social media. So anyway, I was happy to have him on the show. He is from Australia, which you will pick up on immediately when you hear his accent. And it's always great to get perspectives from outside the United States. I like to make this a global podcast when I can. And it's really important that that we get opinions from folks around the globe. So this interview I did with Troy... Uh, obviously in February 8th would have been shortly after the horrific events of January 6th and all the messy stuff that followed that, including in this case, then president Trump being removed from a lot of social media platforms over basically inciting violence. And so the topic was free speech and deplatforming, and, and, and what the implications of that are. So with that as a little bit of a preview, let's listen to a clip of my interview with Troy Hunt. I don't think anybody would disagree with the fact that a private company has the right to ban any one person if they wish. It's a private business. But because they've kind of run amok, because they have they are de facto monopolies in their in their own worlds, even though they're private companies, you know, their market dominance basically means that without access to their platforms, you are essentially, quote unquote, can't exercise your rights to free speech. You're effectively silenced. What do you what do you say to that argument? Well, there's there's merit to that, right? Uh, these are private companies which, on the one hand, should have the right to run their platform as they want to run it, set their own rules. It's a little bit like if it's, yeah, you know, if if you're running a restaurant somewhere and people come into your restaurant and they're they're rowdy and they upset the other patrons, and then surely you, as the restauranteur, have the right to uh, to, to eject them. Now, of course, again, there are nuances even there, but I think to some extent that analogy holds true. That that the challenge is is that a platform like Twitter, if if we combine Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, that is a massive mm-hmm. monopoly, and of course there are other legal constructs uh, out there to try and avoid the situation where you do have monopolies, which then become anti-competitive and and have huge amounts of control over anything. It could be huge amounts of control over oil, but in this case, it's huge amounts of control over communication. And I I think that there is a valid point here about whether we want that to happen. Uh, particularly if we do feel, and, and this is where I think is a very contentious discussion, if we do feel that those platforms then align themselves to political parties, because do we end mm. up with a situation where all the communication that people have access to, or the vast majority of it, is echoing the same message, and, and then you lose healthy diversity? So kind of the, the next layer, maybe almost a orthogonal layer to that, is the smartphone apps. Like So namely, again, another set of 
effective monopolies, and that is the Google Play Store on Android and the Apple App Store for iOS. And Google and Apple basically pulled the Parler app at that point. They're not going to pull. I mean, Facebook let them go, so they're not going to pull those apps. But uh, so the, you know, they pulled the Parler app. So now all of a sudden, this this app had nowhere to nowhere to live. No one could use it or, or install it. So, do you view that as equivalent to the actions taken by Facebook and Twitter, or is there a qualitative difference between that sort of a takedown? It, it's similar. I mean, Facebook and Twitter are obviously removing individuals, so they they removed Trump and they removed one individual's ability to communicate. Apple and Google removed the Parler app from their respective stores. Now, of course, you can still get the mm-hmm. apps in other ways. It's, it's not pretty, and it's usually doing things we really don't want people doing from right. a security perspective. Uh, but they effectively removed accessibility to the platforms. Now, now, to be clear, this is just the app, and there's probably a valid engineering question to be asked around how necessary is that app when you could load it up in the browser anyway. Mm-hmm. But regardless, having a footprint in the App Store is is a big thing for a lot of companies. Right. Right. I, I think that the two things that are really interesting here is, is the fundamental differences between that and the Facebook and Twitter situation is removing an individual versus removing an entire platform. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that starts to get interesting here is when you're removing an entire platform, it, it, it's not down to the communication of one person or the incitement advice right. of one person. Right. It's a combination of saying, look, there's a lot of this happening across many different accounts on the platform and the platform is not doing enough to try and combat that sort of communication. And then, of course, we go down the whole free speech rabbit hole again. <sighs> right. But th- that's, uh, th- that's sort of interesting. And, and the other thing that's very interesting then is that most of the speech we're talking about, whether it be from, from Trump or, or other individuals that might have been removed from those platforms, and then the platforms themselves, the, you know, the parlors, and I'm sure we'll get into the gabs as well shortly. When we're talking about Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, they're three companies. And then we're talking about Apple and we're talking about Google as well. And these are other another two completely mm-hmm. different companies. Keep in mind, companies that compete vehemently against each other as well. Right. Yet yeah. they're all magically drawing the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. Now... Mm-hmm. I have seen a lot of speculation here about there being cabals mm, that are there sure, to sure. Oh, silence yeah. the right. And Especially in the, the US. Left. We love our conspiracy theories. Oh, you do, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so, there's that. But you, you, I always sort of like to go back to the, you know, the Occam's razor. The, the uh, simplest explanation is, is the most feasible one. And the simplest explanation is that the speech which is being silenced, either by individuals or platforms, is just simply out of step with what the vast majority of civilized individuals expect to see and each one of these five different platforms which we've covered now has decided that it's their responsibility to make sure that that speech doesn't fester next up i've got a clip from a very interesting interview from a very interesting person uh, and that is phil zimmerman phil zimmerman was the man who created pgp or pretty good privacy back in the mid 90s or maybe early 90s and Phil lives in Europe now, and he and I have established a sort of friendship, I would like to say. Uh, we've talked many times about social issues. He's very socially active and has a lot of really strong opinions about social media. And so this was a, a very, I think, interesting and important interview that I had with Phil. And uh, I want to play a little bit of a clip from uh, how he feels things went so off the rails with social media and some interesting ideas he had for how we might fix that. You know, social media, you know, was supposed to be, you know, when Facebook first came out and it was supposed to be this kind of something that brought us all together, you know, allowed us to keep and keep in touch and find and get in touch with old friends and things like that. And, you know, I think for some period of time it kind of worked, but then things somewhere took a turn <laughs> in your view, like when and how did things change? When did, where did we go wrong? Well, I, I think that having a business model that optimizes for engagement is the, the dominant reason here. I mean, it's a it's a business model that monetizes customer behavior. I'm mean, not customer, sorry, user behavior. The, the customers are advertisers. <laughs> right. So this is bad because, you know, they're trying to keep you engaged all the time. And nothing drives engagement as much as outrage. Hmm. And And so they try to keep you on all the time angry and and that's tearing society apart it's not that they want to tear society apart they don't they're they're not trying to tear society apart it's just that they're advertising a revenue model 
benefits from people being on all the time, obsessively clicking on confirmation bias news stories, right? And 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 getting more and more angry, and so this results in a in a society tearing itself apart. Uh, the engineers who developed these algorithms didn't realize at the beginning when they first started developing the algorithms, they didn't know where it would lead. Mm. You know, they were just trying to make money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, today we would call it doom scrolling, especially during COVID. You know, it, we, it's watching a train wreck. It's all, you know, yeah. pick all, pick all your, your metaphors. I mean, the, the worst effects that we see are, you could regard them as emergent behavior, emergent properties. I, you know, th there is there's a concept of emergence. It's an interesting uh, scientific discovery. of It's one of the most important discover discoveries of the 20th century, along with uh, Einstein's mm -hmm. relativity and quantum mechanics, uh, you know, the discovery of how complex systems are, are driven by low-level rules. And so, you know, you, you can have very complex systems emerge from simple local rules. And so the, the idea of just getting people to stay on and click on things, that's a kind of a low level thing, but it results in high level behaviors that are immensely destructive, uh, leading to, uh, you know, genocidal events in, in Burma and uh, mm. people becoming hyperpolarized in the United States. And we, we have to do something about this. There's a documentary film called uh, The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've recommended it many times. Yeah, it goes into this in, in some detail, and I, I would recommend it to anyone. Yeah, and I'm sure we were going to cover you know some of those aspects today and get your opinion on some of that stuff. One of the, one of the things that I think, you know, kind of one of the fundamental changes that came about was the timeline, like the Facebook and Twitter used to, you know, in the early days, it was just kind of linear, you know, you, you followed certain people and then you would just get a linear chronological list of things that they posted, you know, the people you followed. And then when these algorithms started kicking in, it started giving, it started tweaking that, it started favoring yeah. certain things over others. And I think that was a, like a, one of the particular engineering, you know, feature changes that led to some of this effect we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it is these algorithms that are just driving things in absolutely crazy directions. We have to do something about it. We have to stop it. We have to change the algorithms. We have to change the business model. We have to intervene here. Well, and one, and one of the other things that I think that became so popular and that people wanted so much were things like the like button or the pin it button. You know, these, these little, uh, these little tags that showed up on all sorts of web pages, not just, you know, obviously not just Facebook. They, this is, this allowed them to get their, you know, kind of claws into everything, right? It, if, and these little buttons that were on the pages did so much more. I mean, even if you didn't click them, they, they were used to track you, but it was also kind of developed this whole, you know, psychological need for approval, you know, where people, yeah. how, how many likes did you get? How many people follow me? And I, I, I think that has to fall into this somehow too, don't you think? Well, yeah, um, it, it drives people to seek this, these likes, but it also drives the, the likers <laughs> into uh, signaling, you know, sort of virtual virtue signaling. Mm. They hit the like button so that everyone else can see them hit the like button. And, you know, it, I mean, this happens on both the left and the right. Um, sure, yeah. People behave differently when they think they're being observed by their peers. You know, I, I mean, on, on the right, there was a uh, a lot of public criticism in the Republican Party against Liz Cheney because she voted for impeachment right. in the House and calls for her removal. But when a, a secret vote was taken, <laughs> then every, you know, two thirds of them voted for, to keep her in, in place. And the, the, the big difference that is that it was a secret ballot. And, and and so that means that virtue signaling w wasn't there. Right. You know, everybody's everybody was expressing their opinion privately. And and so, you know, virtue signaling gets people to pile on and and mm. and go along with the mob. And and we see this on the left also. Uh, you know, the cancel culture. Oh, sure. Where people will criticize somebody like JK Rowling or or uh some, somebody who who does something that everybody wants to condemn so that everyone else can see them condemning it. 
Right. So, uh, you know, I mean, this happens all the time on social media. So I, I think that we need to devise algorithms that try to disarm this virtue signaling behavior. You know, we we ought to have like buttons that nobody can see us press the like buttons, except the person who made the original posting. You can mm. let them know whether you like their article or not, but no one else can see you do it. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. And and then and then and then maybe that person could decide if they want to reveal to the world how many people like their article, or how many disliked it. But if they do the reveal, they would do the reveal where it would just it would just reveal the numbers and not the identities. All right. And next up, I've got a clip from May. Uh, I think it was either episode 219 or 220. I can't remember which one. This was kind of back when I would split some of my uh, interviews up into two different shows. And uh, I was talking with Allison Macrina, who's the founder and head of the Library Freedom Project. And just a just another fascinating interview and a fascinating person. And we were talking about librarians and libraries and, and privacy with respect to uh, both and and access to information and how it has changed and how the promise of the internet really has kind of taken a left turn due to honestly commercialization and consolidation of media and the way we have decided to monetize the the internet and so anyway this i think is a really interesting point about where we are today with respect to equal access to information. One of the other things that is, has had a massive effect, I think, on access to information in this country in particular is all the consolidation that has happened in like the book publishing industry, print journalism, uh, even TV stations. What's your view on how that's impacted our access to information? It's a super good question and a, a very important one, I think, that we don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about, you know, as a society or or even particular people who are interested in things like information access. So there's a really fantastic essay that Noam Chomsky wrote like 30 years ago. It's hmm. called A Propaganda Model. And I mention this because, you know, Noam Chomsky, the media theorist, he lays out, I think, a really really salient and still very timely argument for like how this actually looks in practice. So, mm. you know, people, people, I think, see the way that media is being consolidated and they think, well, I still see all kinds of viewpoints expressed and I still get to buy the books that I care about. And so is there really censorship happening when only, what is it like now five publishing houses <sighs> control right. all the, all the popular you know, print, and then about as many control the academic publishing environment. But we still see lots of different material out there. So how does this really enact any kind of censorship? And so what Chomsky talks about is that what is happening is there are these different filters. So one filter that he talks about is the kind of big business filter. So these, the, the big companies that have consolidated, fundamentally, they are really big businesses and they mm -hmm. are beholden to their shareholders primarily. Mm -hmm. They're not, they're, they're more interested in what their shareholders think than right. most of their other stakeholders. And so those shareholders have a political view about how to, what <laughs> the, what the publishing house should be focusing on. Another filter is the advertising filter. So that's mm. another kind of moneyed interest that has a stake in what gets published and what doesn't. And so the effect that all of these filters have kind of overall is an overall way of promoting status quo views. It doesn't mm. mean that dissident views aren't going to get through those filters. It's just that they're going to be much less likely to. Mm. And so the effect that that is in libraries and overall our access to information is that dissident and marginalized views are made to appear even more marginalized and even more fringe than they maybe actually are. And so, and, and then the kind of more status quo views are made to look more like, you know, they're, they're fairly unchallenged. And so, you know, this is, this is very impactful in a library in particular because the way that we end up making purchases, a lot of these things are getting very consolidated. And so like getting materials from independent publishers and smaller outlets like that, it just becomes 
even more difficult. And there are all different ways that kind of like mass market stuff is incentivized. All right, next up. Uh, in August of this year, I had a really interesting opportunity that I made the most of, and that was going to DEF CON. The 29th DEF CON is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, hacking conference on the planet. Certainly probably the most well-known, and uh, that is for good reason. Now, if you've been to trade show conferences before, you know, you, you've got an idea of what uh, that is like. There's a lot of vendors. There's people selling you stuff. You go to presentations that are often just infomercials. DEF CON is nothing like that. And what I wanted to do, because I'd been to kind of some smaller hacker conferences, uh, but my goal for going to DEF CON for the very, my very first time ever was to bring that experience back to my audience and try to explain what it means to be a hacker and why that is not or should not be a pejorative term. It's, it's so much more than that. And so I'm really proud of, of the episodes that I did around this DEF CON trip. And if you're at all interested in hackers of the hacking community, either because you're interested in becoming one or just because you want to understand it, because I'm, I'm telling you, if you're getting your impression of what it means to be a hacker from movies and television, it is absolutely, almost certainly not reflective of the real world and what hackers are really all about. So anyway, um, I'm going to play you a couple clips of me talking about DEF CON. And I, my trip to DEF CON uh, was summarized in two different podcasts. The first one was kind of me relating my experience, including some audio clips of me at the conference, kind of going through and experiencing it and bringing that back to you guys. And the second one I will get to after we listen to these first couple clips. So I'm going to just play these back to back, but it's kind of my explaining of what I wanted to do with my trip to DEF CON. And then one of the philosophical takeaways I had while, uh, while at DEF CON by somebody giving me a sticker. So with that little tease, here's some clips from episode 232 of my trip to DEF CON. So in this episode, I'm going to, I'm going to take you with me to DEF CON. Now, before you say, oh, this is all going to be over my head, this is all hacker computer stuff I will never understand, this podcast is not going to be a hyper-technical litany of hacker anything. My goal for this trip, and for this podcast, is to help non-hackers understand hackers and hacking. It's not what most people think it is. It's certainly not what's usually portrayed in movies and TV shows. Hackers are an absolutely amazing group of diverse and friendly people. And hacking culture is, frankly, something that I wish was much more prevalent in our society. And I'm going to explain that today. So, again, my mission was to kind of capture some of this vibe from this massive hacking convention in an effort to demystify hacking. And maybe, maybe even kindle some latent hacker traits in each of you. Now, for example, have you ever taken something apart just to figure out how it really worked? Have you ever taken several things apart and tried to create something new from all the pieces? Have you ever been forced to just MacGyver some solution to a problem using whatever you had available and succeeded and came away feeling a real sense of accomplishment? Now, there's more to hacking than this. But the hacker mindset is really just a, a self-driven desire to really learn how something works and then to try to make it do something else. That, in a nutshell to me, I mean, I'm kind of new to this, but in a nutshell to me, and after talking with several people, that that's kind of what it comes down to. But it's more than that. It's way more than that. And the culture in particular, I think, is something I really want to try to drive home today. So real quick, I want to talk about newbies. Uh, I mentioned noob uh, I think earlier in here. So somebody's new to something as a newbie. And it's newbie is usually spelled N-E-W-B-I-E, -E, though a noob in computer terms is usually spelled N-O-O-B, or sometimes N-0-0-B. And somewhere along the line, David, the guy who was with me, ran across a sticker. Because again, there's stickers everywhere. Because it's like a cool thing. <laughs> we trade stickers. It's like, it's like we're in elementary school or something. But we love our stickers. And somebody had a sticker, a little sticker that said noob, N-0-0-B. 
And it, when I first saw it, I kind of chuckled. I thought, yeah, yeah, that's funny. And and then I got to thinking, like, well, he gave me one. I'm like, am I really going to put a sticker? Am I going to announce to the world that I'm a newbie? Am I going to put this on my laptop? You know, along with all the other really supposedly cool stickers I put on there to make me look cool. But then, you know, I got to thinking about it. And, and honestly, yeah, I wanted to put that on there. Because here's the thing. Everybody is a newbie at something. We're all noobs. And at DEF CON, that, that's to be embraced. And I think somebody quoted this at, at one, of the, one of the ceremonies. The most important phrase in science, or in life as far as I'm concerned, is, I don't know. Because that means there's something to learn. That's a good thing. And as very much hacker culture, we, they want to learn more. They want to learn about new things. And they want to teach people what they've learned. So people, you know, contribute to this community and the betterment of others in their own way. Not just with code, not with just the technical stuff. Sometimes it's with, you know, tools or it can also be art, just joy. You know, for me right now, mine, my con contribution is well, journalism, I guess. I'm not sure if it's really what most people call journalism. Uh, I guess, you know, I find articles, you know, of news, but I choose those articles. I pick what sources I think are good sources. And then I edit those down to get the bare essentials. And then I comment on those things. So that, you know, kind of my current contribution is, is that. And I'm out there to teach other newbies, you know, how to protect themselves, how, how security and privacy are important, and how to do all the simple little things uh, that we should all be doing to protect ourselves and to protect our loved ones. But anyway, I now wear that sticker with pride. It's uh, on my laptop, and you just got to own it. It's a good thing. So as maybe you can tell from those clips, I was, <laughs> I was, I was pretty philosophical when I came back from, from that trip to DEF CON. It was, it was pretty impactful. It had a real uh, influence on me. And uh, I will be going back to that conference for the foreseeable future. Next year is the big 3-0, DEF CON 30. Uh, that is going to be huge. I've got lots of plans in the works for that. And I, I, I just can't wait. I just, I'm just hoping, crossing my fingers, that COVID is mostly gone by then and we can have somewhat of a normal conference. But we shall see. Anyway, so it, this next clip, uh, this is me interviewing Jeff Moss. And there's a real interesting story behind how that came to be. But uh, if you want that story, you're going to need to listen to the full podcast if you haven't already. Uh, I'm not going to repeat it. All. I'm not going to repeat it all here. You can tell, by the way, that the audio quality of this next clip is not nearly as good. I had this kind of a cheap little rig that I brought with me. Uh, next year, if I go back and get some more interviews, I'm definitely going to have to up my game. So you'll hear that the audio quality here is not quite as good as my regular interviews. But uh, I was sitting in a little room off to the side with Jeff Moss, the founder of DEF CON. And he is a really interesting down-to-earth guy. And uh, what I asked him a little bit about here uh, in this clip you're going to hear is, you know, how he views DEF CON and how he has managed to make it unlike the regular kind of cookie cutter tech conferences. And I've been to several of those and DEF CON is so, so different and it's such a good way. Uh, so anyway, he's got, obviously being the founder and somebody who's done this for 29 years, uh, has some really interesting takes on that. So anyway, this is me asking Jeff how he manages to keep DEF CON so personal and kind of homey and uh, not so corporate. All right. So before we go, I got to ask you a couple questions about DEF CON. Sure. Um, so as a technical guy, I've been to several conferences, you know, from WWDC to CES. I was lucky enough to go to that before, you know, COVID hit. Yeah. But, you know, hacking conferences, and I've only been to a few, but they have a very different vibe. And you know, to me, it feels like more like a guild meeting of fellow craftsmen you know, or even craftswomen, right? Um, you know, it's a tight-knit but totally open community of practitioners who are committed, you know, to the ideals of hacking as a craft, you know, and as a culture. It's a very different vibe. So how, how do you manage to maintain that vibe with a conference as big as DEF CON for 30 years? Well, it's never been that purposeful in the sense that I think around DEF CON 3 or 4, when the con was bigger than I was, like mm. enough things happened that I never knew about. Like at 1, 2, mostly 3, I could kind of walk around. I knew everything that was happening. It was cool. But by 4, 5, people would start telling me stories that happened at my con <laughs> that I didn't even know happened. <laughs> sure. And emotionally, That must like, be weird. It's weird. You're like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I wish I saw that. And so then it's something huh. you have to be emotionally okay with it's bigger than right. you. Right. Wow. Yeah. Right. It's larger than you. And you're happy other people had these other experiences, but you can't share those experiences. You weren't there. 
huh. but I could share in my other experience, you know? Yeah. And once you get past that, you realize that the con is really a reflection of the community. And so we have the saying, it's kind of corny, but it's really DEF CON is what you make of it. Mm. So if you come in here looking to make friends, you'll make friends. If you come in here looking to compete in the CTF and show off your skills, you can do, you know, it's really about what you, if you want to come in here and be a surly, you know, troublemaker, that's what you'll do. But we can't force you to be a CTF competitor or force you to be great at social engineering, right? We just, and so we turn into the sort of meta conference, a conference of conferences, mm. right? And so then what, so then what we started focusing on was, okay, if that's our identity, how do we foster that? So the idea is like, okay, well, our core is these crazy hackers, like that mentality that I described. Mm. So anything that makes it more hacker is good. Anything that makes it more infosec, we have to think it through because we're not trying to create better enterprise job skills. We're trying to create better hacking mindset. There's plenty of enterprise security thing. That's great. But we've really, in the last what, 10 years, really thought about how do, we, how do we become more hacker? And that means taking apart a PlayStation might be super awesome. But that's not going to advance your career at your company. Right. But it's like your private time. It's, your, it's the thing that inspires you. So we try to think of how do you get like that um, the spark of discovery, that joy of discovery, like your eyes light up. Like, I just picked my first lock. Yeah. Right, yeah, but that's yeah. not going to help you get a job. <laughs> but it's awesome, and now you're like, you mean every time I look at these locks, I can just mm. go? It's like, oh yeah, that's how the world works, and you right. didn't know that ten minutes ago. <laughs> right. And now they see the world through different lenses. The world, the real world, has been revealed to them before the lock. red pill. Right, the world was different ten minutes ago, but now you have a more accurate view. And um, so things like that we try to focus on, and then we try to just acknowledge that it's bigger than us. Focus on the hackers. And then the other thing is you said there's like, yeah, 30,000 people show up. Well, nobody wants to be in a sea of 30,000 people. So then you're like, okay, how do we break people up and get them to meet other people? Mm. Okay, so you're into hardware. There's hardware hacking. There's soldering. There's hardware reverse engineering. So you kind of get in that area. And then you're like, you know, I really like hardware security. And then you're kind of over in that area. And the next thing you know, you're in hardware. And now you're at a table with 10 or 20 people. Mm. And you're like, wow, what do you know? And then four hours later, you're now you're at the lock picking table in a table with 10 or 20 people, and they're learning how to pick a lock. But you're in a place with 30,000 people, but we've created all these like off-ramps into yeah. different communities. Yeah. And you can you can visit 10 of them, 15, you know, you right. can bounce between them. And it's not it's not one you know, homogenized experience. Right. And so some people do nothing but come to talks. And then other people proudly have a shirt that says, not one talk, not ever. <laughs> you know, they don't go to talks. They go for the other things. And so, so each person kind of takes out of DEF CON what they're looking for. So supposedly I already have an in with Jeff to interview him again for DEF CON 30. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And it should be an amazing time. Again, assuming we can... Assuming we can kind of get past some of this COVID stuff, though, frankly, we did have COVID uh, this year, too. And still, I managed to have a, a lot of fun at this conference. All right, moving on from DEF CON. Now, this next clip is from an absolutely fascinating interview I did with this guy named Todd Austin about a new technology for protecting our computers called Morpheus. And the really interesting part about this, and this is the part I captured in this clip, is where he got the inspiration for these new techniques that really heretofore have not been seen in our computer protection schemes. And he got the idea from looking at the human immune system. So this is kind of a long clip. And honestly, most of this clip that I'm going to play for you is about the human body and how the human body reacts to attack and how it protects you from viruses and bad bacteria, things that are not supposed to be there, foreign, foreign infiltrating things that are trying to do you harm. And he walks through the analogy of the, like the three main systems of your body uh, that are used to protect us, and how in computer security, we've kind of mimicked two of those three, but really haven't done anything about this third thing. And this is where Morpheus comes in. This is where this new technology uh, that they want to build into our computing processors, the brains of all the 
computing devices we have to protect us from potentially unknown threats, threats we have not seen before, and yet still be able to recognize those threats and keep them out. So this is going to be actually an interesting science lesson about the human body, but then at the end, we'll bring it home and talk about how he took what he learned from that and applied that to computer security. And so at the time, I was, you know, I was following the work of a researcher named Stephanie Forrest from University of Arizona. And she, she had this epiphany that if you want to build better secure systems, why not study the human immune system? Because the human immune system is the security system of the human right, body. Right. And it's, it's striking how much similarity there is between the mechanisms we've invented. And all these in, are invented by people that probably didn't know anything about the immune system. But amazing amount of, of similarity. So at that time, I really sort of decided I, – I, you know, I dived into Jane's Immunology, which I, one of my colleagues at Michigan, she said, that's the book you got to read. Hmm. And, and, and we started to look for ideas on how to build a system that could stop emergent attacks. Now, an emergent attack is it's an attack you've never seen before, and you got a pretty good chance to stop it. And that's what the immune system does, right? So the three layers of the immune system are the anatomical barriers the innate immune system, and the adaptive immune system. So the top layer, the anatomical barriers, it very much follows the approach we use with patch-based security. It's the idea of keeping bad stuff out, right? So this is your skin, and this is your mucus, right? So the, the skin keeps stuff from getting into your body, and your mucus pushes stuff out of the ports of your body. And so... That is like patch-based security because patch-based security is fix the vulnerabilities that would allow an attacker into my system, right? Is create a shell around my software and my data that is impenetrable, unimpenetrable. Now, in the world of patch-based security, we try to become perfect, but we never are and systems always get hacked. But your body realizes that there's no perfection in stopping things from getting into your body. So it has this next layer, which is the innate immune system. And the innate immune system stops attacks that we've been subjected to for, you know, millennia, right? Is part of your evolutionary development of your immune system that it can stop these kind of bacteria and these kind of viruses really fast, mm -hmm. the built-in protections. And this is really like, this is like the Microsoft CFIs, which is a technology that stops control flow injection or, you know, Microsoft DEP, which stops, you know, data, you know, stack injection or Intel's NX bit, which stops stack overflows. Mm -hmm. These are things that people have put into our systems because we anticipate these vulnerabilities. And so we're going to do a really good job of stopping these kinds of vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. But again, your body knows that it's going to get hit by a new virus and it doesn't want to wipe out ever, you know, it doesn't want to get killed. So it has the adaptive immune system. And what that does that's where the T cell is the superstar, mm. and the T cell is able to identify unknown attackers, find a way to bind to them and destroy them, and then basically kick off a memory process that, in the form of a memory cell, which you know allows you to do that again in a much faster fashion. And it's really interesting to look at how that last layer works because there really isn't much of an analogy for that last layer mm. than there is for, you know, the, in the computer world. Because that last layer, the adaptive muses, it is stopping stuff that the body has never seen before. And it is completely based on randomization and attack detection. So the word inflammation, we're all familiar with that word, that is the attack detectors of the body. They are signaling to the body that something is wrong, something is hurt, something's being attacked. Inflammation are these chemical processes that kick off the immune system. And what the immune system does is it just tries to destroy things in your body that it doesn't see. And it has this ability, and this ability that Morpheus had as well, has the ability, these T cells, to see what is you and what is not you. And there's a really interesting process mm -hmm. that happens in your bone marrow when these T cells are born. They basically, there's a process where you are dangled in front of these T cells, and if they attack you, then that T cell is destroyed. And so as long as the T cell won't eat you, and you know, and then there's things like Guy-Barre syndrome where that breaks down, but in general, in a normal, healthy person, 
the T cells don't, they don't eat you, but they identify things that are not you. And then they try and inflammation tells them this is that that's a bad thing. And then they try to attack that thing. The way they attack is through these sort of genetic markers. They have these ways that they can attack to certain kinds of entities in the body. Like the coronavirus vaccines we take teach our T cells how to attack these spike mm. chains. And so in the process of figuring out how to attach to a spike chain, the T cells have a process to sort of figure out how that's done. And so chances are if a virus comes in your body, there's no way to stop it with T cells that are in your body. So what they do when you're sick is they go into this process called uh, somatic hypermutation and they just start randomly mutating in your body, creating new forms of T cells until they find one that can attach and kill that disease. And when that happens, that T cell sort of graduates to this memory cell stage, which allows it to stay around and tell, you know, if this disease ever comes back again, it gets triggered and it starts producing those T cells again. Uh, really interesting. And then as any good security research will tell you, you want to protect your protections as well, because any mm -hmm. good attacker will try to attack the protections. Mm -hmm. And so the T cells are also very good at protecting themselves. In particular, all your T cells are these all these unique little snowflakes. They share no DNA with you. Hmm. They're completely unique. There's like 50 to the third power possible different oh, wow. kinds of them. And it really quite quite amazing. So if, if a, a virus comes in and tries to attack your immune system, you know, they'll zero in on one or a small class of T cells and then the rest of the T cells will attack you. Huh. Which, you know, when I read that, I thought, well, well how does AIDS work, right? Because AIDS takes mm -hmm. down the immune system. And what AIDS, the AIDS virus does is it attacks the system which creates the T cells and tries to slow that mm. down so that randomization problem process slows down to almost stopping and it lets whatever viruses in the system basically take over. Huh. The analogy in the computer world is like, I can't figure out how to stop your randomization attacks. I'm going to now attack your random number generator. Right. That's like that's like the analogy in the computer world. It's, right. it's striking how many analogies exist. Okay. So, fascinating. This is just mind-blowing. So, okay, now that you've figured this all out, you've had this epiphany, how do you bring it home? How, how did this all of this inform what you did with Morpheus and how does how does Morpheus work? Yeah, so we decided we're going to we're going to lean into this randomization stuff. We're going to make it so that basically we're going to make it so that the surface, the attack surface that the attackers are trying to attack is so complex and fast moving. This idea of moving target mm -hmm. defenses. So not only can it be unknown, but it has to be changing. And that's because, you know, it's harder to hit a moving target than it is to hit a target that's just sitting in one place. If you don't know where the target is, you can search for the target and find it and shoot at it. If the target's moving really fast, it's super hard to hit it. The faster it moves, harder it is to hit. In terms of the attacker, that means understanding the state of the system, the internals of the system, because I want to graft my technology into your technology. And... If I don't understand your technology, then I'm going to study it, and that's called probing. And, I'm, I, and I may do it for days and weeks. Um, and once I understand it, then I will graph my technology into your technology. But the idea of creating uncertainty in the underlying system and then changing that uncertainty on a regular basis creates this really difficult-to-attack system. The analogy we used when we wanted to explain this was – you're trying to solve a Rubik's Cube, and every three seconds, I, t I rip it out of your hands, and I re-randomize re re it. And it'd be really hard to solve. You, you would have to anticipate my moves, which you can't, because I'm right. going to use a true random number generator, something that cannot be predicted. So then you just have to be fast. You've got to be faster, right? The way to attack a Morpheus machine is basically you got to be super fast to, to attack it. You basically have to mechanize your attacks. I just found that conversation just just mind-blowing and, and so fascinating. And obviously, I learned a lot about how the human body works in that interview, too. So now this next clip is from episode 237, which was September 13th. 
And uh, actually, I'm sorry, I realized I probably have not been giving that information for every one of these clips. When I interviewed a very interesting man named Andrea Amico, uh, and he represents a company that he founded called Privacy for Cars. And it's pretty much what it sounds like. Uh, but the thing is that most people don't really think about that. Our cars are computers today. They have built-in computers. And worse yet, almost all modern cars are connected to the internet through built-in cellular modems. And that's true whether you paid for that service or not, because these car manufacturers want to get a lot of data from your vehicle. And so they are transmitting all sorts of telemetry and other data that could be very privacy violating. And we talked about that in the interview, but this next little clip I'm going to play for you is much more mundane than that. And that is the kinds of information that your car just collects normally and could be available to somebody who has access to your vehicle, like maybe a service person or somebody who can just get in your vehicle and may be able to pull a lot of information from your car. And note, by the way, that a lot of this can be pulled from a rental car or your company car or any car that you've interfaced with and maybe synced your phone to and kind of forgot to delete that data when you left. So this is something I think a lot of us need to be thinking about, and his company is definitely thinking about. And you might want to check it out in case you've recently sold a vehicle or rented a car and had your phone synchronized to it. Because uh, he might be able to help you delete that data. What sorts of information can I pull from a modern uh, consumer vehicle? And how much of this information is shared, like, explicitly? Like, you know, when I connect my phone, I expect, you know, that I'm going to be sharing some information there. But how much of that information is collected just autonomously or implicitly by the car? You know, I'm sure behind the scenes, it's got a bunch of computers in it. It's got logs. It's got telemetry, uh, those sorts of things. So what kinds of information do, does a modern car ingest or create? Yeah, well, first of all, there's there's a lot of differences. As you can imagine, cars are evolving rapidly mm -hmm. and with all rapidly evolving technology, the answer changes. So I'm going to be doing some generalizations here, if mm -hmm. you don't mind. But sure. if you have a vehicle with Bluetooth, by the way, they've been around for 20 years. I don't know that people realize mm -hmm. wow. they've been around for this long, right? If you have a vehicle with Bluetooth and you connect over it, or nowadays, if you plug your phone in the USB port, mm -hmm. what most people don't realize is that a lot of data from your phone will automatically migrate inside the car and sometimes you may get a little pop-up somewhere and say hey do you want to transfer your contacts and maybe you will say no mm -hmm. because it's a rental but really there's a lot of other stuff that goes there without really asking you so let me give you some examples so of course your contacts will be there a very detailed log of your calls the text mm -hmm. messages including the content of the actual text messages we've seen in a number of cars all the way up to, you know, with newer vehicles, you can find calendar entries, you have browsing history, you have your, your handle of Twitter and Facebook uh, and some of that activity. Uh, photos you've recently taken your, with your mobile. Mm -hmm. There's a track record of that, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a long list. And on top of it, there's a lot of metadata that is associated with your device, which makes it really easy to re-identify you. The other stuff that the car collects, even without, you know, from your, your own device, is that now cars have uh, very commonly GPS units. Well, mm -hmm. so the breadcrumbs of everywhere you go, <laughs> that's stored locally. By the way, most people, I think, don't realize that even if you don't say, I want to go to the airport or take me back home in their navigation system, even if they don't use it, the car is still logging a detailed record of where they're going, mm. at what speed they're going, and a lot more, right? which gear they're in, who are the occupants, when was the last time that the right door was open, so you know when huh. a passenger came in or came out. Right? There's a lot of that, the weight of the passengers, right? You have now cars with cameras, not only mm. outside, but also inside. Mm -hmm. And so those cameras are originally used for you know, safety features like trying to keep you on your lanes or making sure you're not distracted. Mm -hmm. But, you know, increasingly, there's layers of AI that are being put on it to try to determine, well, which caution are you? Let's read their, their license plates. Mm -hmm. Or are you bored, interested, excited, mm -hmm. angry at the wheel? And all of that, again, is being increasingly logged from cars. So it, it has become a really giant data collecting machine. And in fact, cars collect terabytes of data every year from, from users without most of them really realizing it. Wow. So you mentioned briefly metadata. Uh, and obviously, I think it makes sense when you think about it. Well, if you're hooking your phone up to it, then the metadata around the call, who you called, when you called, how long you talked, and that sort of thing. What 
what other sorts of metadata might be collected by a car today and what might be some of the privacy implications around that? Connecting your phone, it means that, you know, you have the unique identifier of your phone stored right there, the name of the device in there. In fact, there's the, there was a very famous story a few years ago of a crime that was solved because the name of the Bluetooth device that was synced hmm. was the handle of somebody on Twitter. And so they figured out who was the person that stole the car, right? Oh, and wow. Literally, there was no data extraction. Literally, they just compared the name of the device with the name of the person and they got a match. Hmm. And we do a lot of audits. I can tell you very, very often we find, you know, first and last names of people being in the descriptor of the phone. Mm-hmm. And from there to, you know, and then you have the home address. And then at that point, you really know who was driving that car. And then, right. you know, everywhere they went, their garage, their codes, you have everything. All, all of this is, you know, very problematic and you need, don't need any technical skills to extract this data. And if you have a little bit of technical skills, of course, you can get a lot more. So this next clip is not that long ago, actually. We're kind of catching up to modern time here. Uh, this was aired early in November, though I actually interviewed him in October. And it's a man named Harry Hursty. And Hari Hursty is a literally world-renowned election security researcher slash hacker. And uh, he's been featured actually in two separate HBO documentaries, both of which were very good, about how sadly easy it is to hack a lot of the voting equipment that we use here in the United States. And actually, uh, these are used around the world. In fact, after the first documentary, one of the hacks that he performed on an actual voting system from Florida, uh, one that was used in the 2000 election with Bush v. Gore, ended up being called the Hursty hack. So I had a chance to meet Hari at DEF CON because he has started a few years back the Voting Machine Hacking Village. And what he wanted to do, again, with his years of experience in doing this, he wanted to bring these devices to the hacking conference and let the hackers that attend poke at these things, see what they can figure out, see if they can find chinks in the armor, see if they can find ways to hack these systems. And (laughs) this was not easy because the makers of these proprietary systems do not want third parties, just any old third party, to be able to try to hack these things. They They like to keep their stuff in-house. They hire third parties that they choose that are subject to their contracts and how much they can disclose, uh, and they pay them. And so there's a definite, you know, conflict of interest there to test these systems and and say that they're secure, and they just aren't. Uh, It's just painfully obvious. So in this next clip, Harry explains how they actually got a hold of the systems to test them. Let's talk a little bit about the Hacking Village, and this is something that started in DEF CON, I think, 25. Uh, anyway, not not that long ago, you started the Voting Hacking Village, and you found several really interesting things. But one of the things I want to touch on before we get into, and I want you to kind of talk about some of the key findings you've made, is getting a hold of those systems in the first place. Because, again, these companies are not offering these to you, right? I mean, my understanding, a lot of times you had to go to eBay or and in the, the most recent uh, HBO documentary, you find an interesting warehouse where you were able to buy some of these things kind of wholesale, uh, you know, second market Talk to us about how you set the village, how you get the machines that you actually, I mean, I don't know if they finally started volunteering machines or not, but I know they didn't originally. And what you've, what were some of the key findings you've, you've made over the last few years? First of all, the reason why Voting Machine Hacking Village, which we are now calling Voting Village, why it became possible was because of a Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the Security Research Exempt. So I was one of the people who were writing a position paper when every three years, so there's a trillennial review of Copyright Act, where we were asking a exempt for a bona vide security research of certain kind of devices, voting machines, consumer electronics, medical equipment, cars, you know, these kind of things. So we get the exempt. Hmm. Uh, without that, we couldn't have done voting bills. Just full stop there. Well, once we got the exempt, we were starting to look well where to get the voting machines. And, you know, quick search, eBay. We found a lot of those in eBay. And we found a government surplus stores, which are selling. And I even have a one set of voting machines, which I paid $0. I just had to pay $1 to get the 
buyer's uh, certificate because I always want to prove that everything I have has been legally obtained. Sure. Anyway, the reason why in the movie we have that warehouse is because of voting system vendors. So when we announced that we will have this voting system in the village, one of the vendors sent a letter to all their customers, all secretary of state and whatnot, and claimed that they will take legal action against us because we have few stolen voting machines. We have illegally obtained those. We have a few stolen machines which we have bought from the criminals. And hence, we are by extension criminals mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, this is like expletive. It's like, no, this is BS. So that's why we went to film this warehouse where there's over a thousand unsold voting machines and the guy is selling them in, on cash to everyone and, and willing to ship them overseas. Uh, that's the only reason why that segment was because of the claim right. that we have somehow illegally obtained mm. these voting machines. Well, after that, we there had been a constant tug of war. We have been threatened with illegal actions, with the craziest legal theories, one of the legal theories was to say that in the demonstration, uh, a the voting machine lock was picked, that that is a copyright violation. And because we have violated the copyright there, then the DMCA is not exempt. Mm. And, you know, we just have to go and say, first of all, this lock is so old that it actually hasn't doesn't have any copyright or patent anymore. It's all expired. Second thing is we bought the machines with the keys. So this was just uh, to show that it also can be, we, we had the keys. Mm-hmm. And after that next year, I bought a massive amount of those keys and gave them all journalists who wanted to have their own keys. Oh, <laughs> <neat>. you know, <laughs> because they are standard keys. The most common lock we use in the, in the voting machine is the same, which is the most common minibar hotel key. So it's actually <laughs> literally the same key with the same key coding. Oh my God. So, so that's why I just went to buy and uh, bought the most common Oh, that's funny. Mini bar key. And <laughs> that's the same key. <laughs> oh, that's classic. All right. Now, just as a little point of podcast host privilege, I'm actually going to break the timeline a little bit. And for this last clip, I wanted to find something a little more hopeful and kind of save the best for last. Though, honestly, with the quality of some of these other clips, I'm not sure if I could even say that. But anyway, I was able to interview a world-renowned cryptographer, the guy who literally wrote the book on cryptography, named Bruce Schneier. And Bruce is a great guy. He, uh, over the years, has kind of shifted into policy stuff, and he has testified in front of Congress many times, and he serves on many boards and as a consultant for many different organizations. And he has some really good perspectives on security and privacy and he is also very good at explaining to regular everyday people why these things are important and how we need to address these issues. So he and a gentleman named Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and he is a true sir, a knight of the realm, uh, knighted by the Queen of England, for work that he did in basically founding the internet. And the two of them are working on this project based on a standard called SOLID, and that's uh, an acronym which off the top of my head I can't remember, but the idea being that we should be in more direct control over our user data. And I'm not so sure this idea is really going to work, but I kind of hope it does, because as much as I talk about privacy and how we need to be guarding our data and reducing the amount of data that we're giving away, it's really because that data is being abused. Data is not, in and of itself, bad. Uh, In fact, it's extremely useful and very powerful if you do the right things with it. You just have to be very careful. And and the problem is that today, with all the data we are generating as just digital exhaust, you know, as just part of going about our daily lives, is being hoovered up for purposes that don't really benefit us. Now, you know, the marketers will tell us that they're trying to do this for our benefit to make ads and our experiences more relevant. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's monetizing us and the collection of this truly personal data and not securing it well and selling it to basically anybody who wants to buy it is causing all sorts of problems. But there exists a future where data is good and 
the collection of that data, if done properly and used properly, can be a boon really for society. And so anyway, I kind of saved this last clip for that. And it's me asking Bruce, you know, what that brighter version of the future where data is used for our benefit and only for our benefit might look like. All right. So looking ahead to a brighter future, as I really want to do kind of with this, this episode, I, I think that we've all, but me in particular, I've begun so jaded when we think about data that we want to hoard it. We want to not provide, we don't want to generate any, we, you know, because it's, we're just afraid it's going to get out there and come back to haunt us. But I mean, if you look back in science fiction, like Star Trek or some of those other ones where, or even more modern ones, like the movie Her, you know, the more utopian version of data where data is a good thing. Like I, if, if I could trust that anybody who had my data would use it strictly for my benefit, a data fiduciary, there's a lot of really cool stuff we could do. I mean, there's a lot of powerful things we could do with all that good things we could do with data, not just for me, but for society. I mean, so, but as a privacy guy, you know, we're kind of, we've been beaten into submission and we kind of think, oh no, data's bad, but it, it's not, it doesn't have to be. And I think that's kind of what, maybe what Tim is, is, is hoping for. So what, what vision of the future might we have that we were, that we, we might not see if we could trust that our data was not going to be abused. What, what kind of benefits would we, could we look forward to? So I think we don't know because I think it's an explosion like the World Wide web where we have no idea what's going to happen. But then, then I, mean, I mean, but think about the kinds of paths. It's all of your data in one place in a way that could be manipulated. If you can trust that the data from your Fitbit can be combined with the data from your doctor and oh, your refrigerator who knows what you've eaten, sort of all together for your health, that'd be fantastic. If all of our medical data could be combined in a way for researchers mm. do massive studies of drugs and lifestyle and uh, environmental factors... I think the medical results would be amazing. Uh, if you can track movements in cities and learn about how resources are being used. You know, all of these ways, data, if you just, if you just remove privacy concerns, hmm. like it, it's magically solved, I think it unlocks things that we just can't even dream of yet. Yeah. It feels like a step in that direction. I mean, you know, back in the real world, we have these privacy concerns. And that's why, you know, people like you and I tend to be pretty backwards in sort of stuff we use because we say Fitbit. Oh, no way I'm wearing that. You <laughs> right. crazy. Hey, you know, but wearing a Fitbit's kind of fun. Mm. And I'm a little jealous of the people who wear it and know all the things I don't because I don't want that data generated and given to, I don't know, whoever owns Fitbit these days. I forget. Right. It, it, it really is a conceptual leap that is going to change things in ways we can't think of the same way the web did. And it's really neat to do that twice in your life, mm. like to change the world. I'll tell you another thing. Uh, it is really neat to be the second most famous co person in a company. <laughs> the new experience for me. And I kind of like it. So there you have it. There is the 2021 year in review, even though I guess technically that last clip was right at the end of 2020. Uh, but nevertheless, I hope you enjoyed that. I, even if you're a, a, a longtime listener, I hope you enjoyed kind of taking a walk with me down memory lane and revisiting some of the, the highlights from this year. I really do enjoy interviewing these people. I've been for, a, you know, my podcast is not huge. It, it doesn't have a, a, a huge listenership, at least not yet. But I have managed to interview some amazingly interesting and influential people about some very important topics. And I, I love doing it. And I'm really looking forward to getting even more amazing interviews for you next year. Now, Bruce has been on my show twice. He was there for the 100th episode and the 200th episode. And he has agreed to be back here for the 300th, which should be in just about a year. So we'll look for that toward the end of 2022. But I have all sorts of other great people that are, that, that are on the hook that I'm trying to reel in uh, for, for interviews next year. And so subscribe if you haven't, so you don't miss any of that wonderful new content coming your way. 
Uh, I'm also doing my best with almost every single interview I do to collect some bonus content from my guests and making that available to my patrons. So if you're ever thought about being a patron, that is one of the big benefits of being one. Also, uh, I have a Discord server, which is if you ever use Slack or Microsoft Teams or some of these other kind of enterprise type communications systems, it's kind of like that. It started off for gaming, but now it's just, it's kind of like the everyday person's version of Slack. But we can chat. There's different rooms you can talk in. And uh, I monitor it regularly and have a chance to interact with my patrons there. So you can ask me questions. We can chat about whatever. I really enjoy being able to interact with you guys because <laughs> when I'm doing this right now, other unless I'm talking to someone with an interview, I'm basically just talking to a wall and a microphone. <laughs> so it's very one-sided. So I really do enjoy having some give and take with my listeners. Uh, so if you become a patron, you will have access to that as well. If you miss the challenge coin, I will be doing another promotion for that at some point. I'm not sure when, but uh, definitely stay tuned for that. They are super cool. Uh, if you're a new subscriber and you're not sure what I'm talking about, you can check it out by going to d20key.com uh, and go to the coin tab there. You'll get information on that. Or if you go to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and search on challenge coin, you'll find the information there as well. But I'm so glad I made those coins. Uh, it's been really fun giving those out. And again, if uh, if you got one of those coins or if you eventually get one of those coins and you meet me, perhaps, let's say, at DEF CON 30 next August, present that coin to me and it is good for a free drink on me and I will be happy to buy it for you. All right, that's it, everybody. Uh, thank you again for tuning in. I'm hoping you're having a great holiday break. Use this opportunity, especially if you're technically inclined at all, uh, or you can take the things you've learned from this podcast and the blog and the newsletter and the book. And while you're visiting your friends and family, talk to them about privacy, talk to them about security, make sure that they're doing the things they need to do to, to stay safe. And, you know, maybe your gift, one of your gifts for them is going to be the gift of time and effort, which will hopefully lead to the gift of better security and better privacy. So if I have inspired you to go back and re-listen to some of these episodes, you can find links, direct links to each of these episodes in the show notes. So take care, everybody. Have a happy, happy new year, which will be coming up between now and the next episode. I've got a wonderful interview coming up uh, for the week after New Year's with a representative from Common Sense Media about kids' privacy. That was a really important discussion. And then somewhere in there, I'll be uh, giving you my advice for your New Year's resolutions for 2022. Okay, but until then, everybody, stay safe out there. Have a wonderful rest of your holiday break. And until next time, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>